Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, as we are continuing our series preaching through the the book of Esther. And uh, as you are turning there, I want to share with you a day from my childhood that I will never forget, okay? And, uh, and it happened on a day uh, when my family was living in the Chicago uh, area uh, while my dad was there going to seminary. And uh, I was about five, so I was about kind of the kin- kindergarten age range, all right? And I don't remember much from that time, uh, but I do remember this one specific day. And uh, it was a day when my oldest sister, Betsy, and I, we were outside playing in the yard. And my oldest sister, she's about four years older than I am, so she's, you know, roughly nine or ten at this time. And we're playing with friends out in the yard. And uh, our parents, you know, my parents had, had said that there's a certain kind of boundary we're not supposed to go past. Uh, we were supposed to play either in our yard or in our neighbor's yard. Uh, but on this one particular day, we were feeling a little extra adventurous uh, or maybe maybe a little extra rebellious, uh, depending on how you look at it. And, uh, and we were playing with friends who then wanted to go across the street and play in the yard across the street. And so we, we knew the instructions that my parents had had given, uh, but we, we compromised our obedience to them, and we said, sure, we'll come across the street and play with our friends there. And so we're playing across the street, but then our friends want to go further down the street, all right? And, and at this point, we're thinking, okay, you know, we, we know we shouldn't, but, you know, at this point, we're already living in disobedience, so like, we've already compromised, let's just go further down the street. So we go further down the street. And then our friends want to go into the backyard further down the street because behind those houses was a a canal, like a little river and a little bit of a wooded area. And so it was it was out of, you know, eyesight from our house. We knew we probably shouldn't go back there, uh, but we wanted to check it out. So we went back there with friends. And as we're going down, I slip and fall, and I get just covered in mud on my shirt and my pants. And so I've just got all this mud all over me. And so now we know, okay, when we do go home, we're going to have some explaining to do, uh, because obviously we've been somewhere where I've gotten covered in mud. So my sister uh, suggests that I take off my shirt and my pants, and she's going to wash them in the creek, right? This is... I mean, we were, she was really big into like, you know, Little House on the Prairie. It was, it was, we were, she was like, I, this is a good solution. I will take, so, so I, I take my shirt and my pants off and I strip down to my G.I. Joe underwear. Uh, I still remember uh, because then, of course, all her friends were like starting to make fun of me and kind of laugh at me, right? And so I'm hiding like in the tall grass, right? The tall grass of like shame. I'm like hiding down in here and she's washing my clothes in the creek and really only making it worse, right? Like the, now my clothes are soaking wet. There's mud all over. It's not really solving anything. And at that point, I remember I started to cry. Like I just started to lose it, right? I'm four or five years old. Uh, I, I had compromised my obedience to my parents little by little to the point that now all of a sudden I'm far away from home. I'm hiding in tall grass. I'm pretty much naked, and I'm ashamed that I have disobeyed my parents. And, and at that point, all I wanted to do is go home. But, but, but I didn't know how to get home, and I was ashamed to show back up either in my underwear or in you know, wet, muddy clothes. 
And it was little compromises along the way that led me to this place of just despair. I just wanted to go home, but I didn't, I didn't know how to get home, and I didn't know how to explain all this mess that I found myself in. And this, this morning, we are going to be introduced to the first time in Esther to, uh, to Mordecai and to Esther. And Mordecai and Esther, they are a part of families that have compromised their faith. They have compromised their obedience to God. They are far away from home. They are far away from Jerusalem. They are far away from where the temple is being rebuilt. And they seemingly are far from God. And we're going to see that they are a compromised people living amongst the non-God-fearing Persian Empire. I'm sure none of us can relate to that right now, right? Like, that, like they are a compromised people living amongst a non-God-fearing Persian empire. And yet, and yet, we will see that there is hope for the compromised people of God. There is hope for the compromised people of God. And we are going to see this morning that all of us, either consciously or subconsciously, we have compromised to some degree or another with the culture that we live in. However, our hope is in the fact that God is not done with his compromised people. God is not done with his compromised people. And so my prayer this morning is that we will be drawn to worship this glorious God who continues to work even when his people have compromised with the culture that they live in. So let's pray and let's ask God to do a mighty work as we proclaim his word. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. And these are your people. And help me be a faithful steward in the role that you've put me in. I ask that you would give me a deep love for the people that I'm preaching to. And I ask that you would help me articulate well your glory and your beauty and your awesomeness. Lord, even though it's beyond my comprehension. Help me powerfully proclaim what you have done in spirit. I ask that you would show us what we are to do. And this is all for your glory and for your fame. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to attempt to get through verse 18 of Esther chapter 2. Jonah already read uh, uh, through verse 8, so I'm not going to read everything she read, but let's, let's look together at Esther 2 verse 1. Esther 2, verse 1. And after these things, when the, king, uh, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Okay, most of you remember Esther chapter 1, okay? King Ahasuerus, or Ahasuerosh in Hebrew, or better known by his Greek name Xerxes, which is what I'm going to say, all right? This is King Xerxes. King Xerxes in chapter 1, he throws this elaborate six-month party for all the leaders of the Persian Empire, followed by a one-week party for all the people living in the city of Susa, which is the wintertime capital of the Persian Empire, which is in modern-day Iran, okay? So that's where we're at here. And at the end of this party, Xerxes is showing off, right, all his power and his wealth and all his influence, and he calls Queen Vashti to come show off her physical beauty, and this was probably done in a very degrading way, at the very least a very objectifying way, and so she says no. 
She says no, which that is unheard of in the Persian Empire to, for anyone to say no to Xerxes. And so he gets some advice from his advisors, and they recommend that he banish Vashti. Okay, so that's chapter 1, chapter, Esther chapter 1. Now we're moving to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is a few years later, okay? So there's a few years in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And you should also know in between chapters 1 and 2, Xerxes is leading a military campaign against Greece. He's trying to invade the mainland of Greece, and he's ultimately defeated. This is when history tells us like the 300 Spartans, right? They hold him off, and Greece kind of prevents him from invading uh, that land. And so Xerxes is now kind of sulking back in defeat, coming back to Susa, and he's, he's been humiliated, right? He's possibly now even regretting uh, banishing Vashti. And so what he does is he gathers his, not, not his wise counselors like he did before. We saw how that went. But he gathers the young men to get their advice. Which is kind of funny because in general that's never a good idea to get the young men uh, for their advice. Uh, and so the young men, they come up with a plan, uh, which is what you would expect young men to come up with. They say, hey Xerxes, let's gather all the most attractive girls in the empire, right, so that you can be with them all, sleep with them all, and then you can pick the one that will replace Avashti, okay? Now listen, it's, 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 this, is a, this is a horrific, tragic plan. Okay, because we are talking about we're talking about girls being taken from their families all across the empire. Some some maybe willingly went. Some maybe you know uh, were intrigued by life at the palace, but probably most went unwillingly. They are taken right to be used for their physical appearance and for the pleasure that the ki- that King Xerxes can get from their bodies from one night with them. And so understand that this plan and this process, it looks a lot like kidnapping, human trafficking, and rape, okay? That is what this is. This is a horrific, cruel empire, and this is a horrific, cruel plan that they're putting into place, okay? Uh, Because not only were these girls then forced to spend a night with the king, but after they had spent a night with the king, it was unlawful for them to ever be with another man again. They could never marry, they could never have kids, they could never return to their families, and so they were to live in the harem uh, after their night with the king in just this lonely, isolated uh, uh, for the rest of their life, wounded from this one horrific night that they had to spend with the king. All right, so it's a, it's, this is a cruel empire. This is a cruel plan that they're doing. Now, so far in Esther, we've, we've mainly been reading about Xerxes, which, which I think we can agree is not that great of a guy, right? We're kind of not rooting for Xerxes. He's, he's kind of declared, right, he's, he's, he's on the, 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 the villain side of things, right? All right, uh, but, but, but where are the heroes? Where are the heroes? Every good story has a hero. Certainly, uh, maybe it, getting introduced to Mordecai and Esther will provide us with some heroes. So let's, let's see. Esther 2, uh, verse 5. Look at Esther 2, verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, stop right there. We, we read verse 5, and we think, no big deal, right? We're just getting introduced to Mordecai. However, the original Jewish reader of this story would read verse 5 and cringe. They would read verse 5 and cringe. And so let's, let's try to put ourselves in the place of the original uh, readers. And so I'm going to read verse 5 again, and I want to see everyone's best cringe. All right? Everyone, you get, get your cringe face ready. Okay? Verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Yeah. Is that, I, 
You guys are looking similar to how you always look. Do you usually cringe when I preach? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. There was a Jew in Susa the Citadel whose name was Mordecai. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now here's, here's why you would cringe. Okay. Here's why you'd cringe. Number one, he's a Jew who's still living in Susa. So let's, let's recap world history here for a second. God had exiled the people of God from the promised land from Jerusalem because of their disobedience. And he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to do this, who came into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, took people into exile. The Babylonians eventually get conquered by the Persians, but the Persians under King Darius, uh, which was Xerxes' father, says that the people of God may return to Jerusalem and they may rebuild the temple and many of the people go, right? They're free to go back home, to go back to the promised land, to rebuild the temple. So many go, but some do not. All right, And so Mordecai and his family have been freed to return home, freed to rebuild the temple, which, which before Christ was the, the earthly dwelling place of God. And so it was, it was very important to live close to the temple. All right, that was an important thing. But Mordecai has not gone home. His family has not returned, okay? He's, he's far from home. He's, he's far from God. He, and, and this is by his own choice, all right? Or at least by his family's choice. As he's likely to some degree enjoyed Persian culture, he's enjoyed Persian life, and so he has compromised and he has stayed in Susa, okay? He has stayed in Susa. So that's number one why someone would cringe when they read verse five, a Jew that is still living in Susa, okay? You would cringe. Number two, not only is he in Susa, but he's living, he's not living in the outskirts of the city where many of the other exiles lived. Uh, no, he's, he's in the citadel, He's in the citadel, and the citadel was the center of the city where the political and the military leaders were, and so we know that Mordecai is, in, is some sort of civil servant in the Persian Empire, okay? He's, he's, he's a part of this, all right? He's in the citadel. So that's the second reason why you'd cringe. The third reason you would cringe is because of his name, Mordecai. Now, Mordecai, before this story, was not a Jewish name, all right? After this, it got more popular, but before this, it was not. Mordecai is a Persian name, and it's a Persian name that is derived from the chief god of the Babylonians, Marduk, okay? So to say that there was a Jew living away from home, a civil servant of a Gentile empire whose name is derived from a Babylonian god, that would make you cringe, okay? Verse 5 would make you cringe. And so it's got to make us stop and think, like, wait a minute, like, can this guy be the hero in the story, right? Can, can this guy be, you know, is this who we're looking for to be the hero in this story? Maybe. Maybe he can. But at the very least, it's clear that he has, to some degree, compromised with the culture that he's living in. Look back at verse now 7, Esther 2, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Okay, Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and he has taken her in because her parents have died. She was an orphan, all right? Esther was an orphan, and Mordecai takes her in. That's a pretty honorable thing, right? Uh, so maybe he's not so bad. He's taken her in, and hopefully he will protect her like a father would. So let's look at verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, 
Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had uh, charge of the women. All right, listen. There is so much in the story of Esther that is not told to us. Okay? There is so much that we don't know. And that is really frustrating for me. That is really frustrating. Like, like I want to know, uh, did Mordecai resist Esther being taken? Right? I mean, was there any sort of scuffle or a fight? Like, if that's my daughter, I don't, I don't have daughters, but even just the thought of having a daughter makes me want to, like, fight a young man or something, right? Like, I, so I, can, I think I can sort of understand. Like, if that's my daughter, I'm, I'm smuggling her out of the country. I'm hiding her. I'm, I'm finding a good Jewish boy for her to quickly marry. Like, I'm, I'm doing something to resist this, all right? Maybe it's futile. Maybe they're still going to get her, but, but I'm going to do something. So we... We don't know, though. We don't know what Mordecai is thinking here, uh, but he obviously didn't go all Liam Neeson on the Persian Empire. Like, he obviously has not done, you know, much because he allows her to be taken, all right? So Esther is taken. So, um, um, so can Mordecai here be our hero? We don't, we don't know. Is Mordecai a hero here? We don't, we don't know. At best, he's a compromised hero. But, but in these verses, we're also introduced to Esther, okay? And we're given two names for Esther. One is Hadassah, which is her Jewish name, which means myrtle, uh, which was a beautiful, fragrant tree, and its leaves would be waved at Jewish festivals as a symbol of peace and justice. And then uh, she has a Persian name, which is Esther, which means star, and could also be based upon the Babylonian goddess of love and war, okay? And so we're given two names for Esther. And we also learn from these verses that she was an orphan, all right? She was an orphan. And so you can imagine just some of the childhood trauma that she has gone through and losing both of her parents and having to be taken in by her cousin. And now she's going to be taken away from her cousin and placed in the harem of the king. But again, there's, there's so many questions here that we don't get the answers to. Like, did Esther want to go? I mean, it's maybe reasonable to think like, yeah, maybe life at the palace is, is not that bad. Uh, did she like the possibility of maybe becoming queen? Or, or, or did she resist? Like, was she totally against this? And so we, we don't know. Again, the, the author doesn't tell us, so we're not going to read into it. We don't know. But what we do know is that even if she was maybe internally protesting, externally she didn't show it much because she's winning favor in the harem and kind of moving up, kind of you know, playing the game and, and, and gaining favor amongst uh, the, the Persians. So look back at verse 9, Esther 2, verse 9. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. Okay, so we see that she's now keeping her true identity a secret. But the problem is, by doing so, she's probably breaking many of the commands of the Torah, okay? And so she's probably not observing the Sabbath, which to a Jewish person, that was a big deal, right? That, that was breaking the command of God to them. She wasn't probably observing the dietary restrictions as she's trying to keep her identity a secret. And I, I mean, just contrast this story to the story of Daniel, who, who did serve in a Gentile empire, but he made it clear and lived in such a way that would not compromise his obedience to God's law. 
And we just, we don't see that from Esther, right? We don't see that Daniel-esque kind of uh, standing up uh, uh, that, that we see with Daniel, right? She's at the very least compromising the law that God had given her, and she will continue to do so by sleeping with a man who's not her husband, again, maybe willingly or unwillingly, and then marrying eventually Xerxes, who's a non-Jewish man, which was a very severe offense for the people of God, okay? Look back at verse 11. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Mordecai, is, we do know he, he's still involved and, and wondering how she's doing. Verse 12, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go to King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman, woman went into the king uh, in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, which there's a little golden, I mean, that's a good name right there that we just found, all right? If we're claiming biblical rapper names, I call that one, all right? All right, so Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, she would not go into the king uh, again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the twelfth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, okay, chapter one was in the third year of his reign, this is the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Okay. We got to clarify a couple of things. Just to clarify, this is more than just a beauty contest, okay? And, uh, and I'm not trying to be provocative just for the sake of being provocative, but this is more than a beauty contest, all right? They are spending the night with the king. And, and kids, you can ask your parents on the way home what that means, all right? Uh, but, but listen, remember what we talked about some in our city groups in the last few weeks. Uh, this, this topic might have come up how uh, some things in the Bible are prescriptive, okay? Uh, so they prescribe to us, they tell us how to live and what we should do. Uh, but there is a lot of the Bible that is descriptive. It's just describing to us what happened, okay? Uh, so this, uh, Esther chapter 2, is not prescriptive, okay, to us. This is not prescribing, this is not telling our women how to use their bodies to get ahead in life, okay? That would be a wrong way to read this text, okay? We, uh, it, it is, yes, in the Bible, but this is not prescriptive, this is descriptive. So we got to come back then to the question, okay, so is, is Esther going to be the hero here? Like, like, I mean, later on, she is going to do some honorable things, and we'll, we'll see that. She is going to do some honorable things. But do the ends kind of, do the ends justify the means of her getting there? 
You see, we often want to read the Bible and we want to separate people into, into like the good people and the bad people, right? We want to get like two uh, flannel graph boards and, and put kind of like the bad people over here and all the heroes of the faith like the good people over here. And, uh, but then when we actually start looking at the people we want to put on the good side, uh, things just start getting a little murky and a little muddy, right? I mean, Abraham seems like a pretty solid guy, takes a step of faith, follows where God's calling him to... Uh, to, to go where he does not know he's going, and yet he lies about his wife being his sister a couple times. That seems kind of not okay. I don't know. I, I've never, you know, I, that's not something I usually do, and that's, that's it, so it just starts getting a little murky, like, oh, yeah, Abraham, but but what's up with that? Or, or Noah, right? He's, he's uh, uh, you know, described as a righteous guy. Uh, he's a great, you know, boat builder. And then after the flood, like, we find him drunk. And we're like, oh, what's, what's up with that, right? Or David, right? The man after God's own heart. And then you, you start looking into it, and it's like adultery and murder and cover-ups and all this stuff. You see, if you're looking for it, the Bible is not written in such a way so that we would see good people and bad people. The Bible is brutally honest and holds nothing back about these people's sin and the compromises that they make so that we would see that everyone who has walked on the face of the earth, except one, everyone else who's walked on the face of the earth is fallen and affected by sin. And there was only one who was truly good, and his name is Jesus, and he is the hero, right? So, so why is it confusing to read about Esther and Mordecai and try to figure out, are they the heroes or are they the good guys or the bad guys? Like, why is it ambiguous? Why is it unclear? The author could have given us some more insight to their motivations and their thought processes on some of these things, but, it, but they didn't. Why? You see, Esther is written in this way because the author is trying to show us that Mordecai and Esther are not the heroes of the story. God is. Right? God is the hero of the story. And there's going to be some honorable things. We can look at Esther and Mordecai, but it's not being painted in such a way that these are the heroes that we are to follow everything they did in life. This is being set up for us in such a way to see that God is going to be the hero of this story. Mordecai and Esther are compromised. They have compromised God's law. They have compromised their convictions. They've compromised their people and probably their conscience. They've compromised their homeland, and they are far from God, and they are far from home, and they've got some mud and dirt on their clothes like I did in that backyard in Chicago. And yet, and yet, what we see in this story is that God is not done with his compromised people. And we see that God can and does and will continue to work through compromised people to carry out his good and perfect purposes. Now that's, that's good news, church. That's good news, church, because we are a compromised people. We are a compromised people. We've made compromises with our culture, both individually and corporately, all right? And, and, uh, and so... Take a moment just right now, and Spirit, I ask that you would convict us, Lord. Bring to, bring to mind some things that we have compromised. But let me ask you this question. How have you in your life compromised your faith? How have you compromised your convictions? 
How have you compromised your love for God with the love of other things? How have you compromised? Now allow me to share with you three ways that I see compromise happening in the church and especially the church in America, right? In our, in our context, context. Ways that the church has compromised with the culture. And I'm going to summarize it with, with three ideas, okay? Uh, there are three isms, pragmatism, consumerism, and radical individualism, all right? Three ways that I see the church in the West, church in America, that has, we have compromised with our culture, and that is pragmatism, consumerism, and radical individualism. So let me explain. First, pragmatism. Pragmatism is the valuing of a thing based entirely on its practicality, all right? It's not wrong to be practical. The Bible is very practical. We want our teaching to be practical. But pragmatism is the valuing of a thing based entirely on its practicality. And so it consists of this idea that if it works, let's work it, all right? If it works, let's work it. For example, okay, if, if a helicopter dropping eggs from the sky gets people to come to church, all right, then pragmatically you should do it, okay? Uh, that's just, uh, that's, 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 what's happening, right? right? It, but practically and pragmatically, like if that works, then you should do it. It's the idea that the ends justify the means, to that end, right? It, it, that the ends justify the means to that end. And so pragmatically, you can look at the story of Esther and say, well, we know God's people will need to be rescued in later chapters, right? Spoiler alert if you haven't read the rest, okay? We know that it's coming, like they're going to need to be rescued. So pragmatically, uh, we, you know, we know we need to get Esther into a position that she can do something. And so what's the big deal with a little compromising of God's law? What's the big deal with a little lying about her identity? What's the big deal with a little sexual immorality or a little breaking of the Sabbath or the dietary restrictions. Like, what's the big deal, right? The ends justify the means. Esther did what she needed to do to get into the position God needed her in. So what's the big deal? That would be a pragmatic way of thinking about this story. It's, it's, it's the same uh, when people take the evangelistic strategy, uh, flirt to convert. Are you guys aware of that strategy? Uh, it's a bad strategy. I don't think they should teach it. But, you know, in high school or college, if there's someone you're attracted to that doesn't love Jesus, but you really want them to, uh, then you kind of take the approach, you're going to flirt to convert, right? And so, uh, you know, maybe Esther is thinking the more she's flirting, the more the Lord will be converted or something like that, and uh, it's, it's, it's a bad strategy, right? It usually never uh, ends very well, and so, uh, but, but it's that idea that the ends justify the means to that end. That is pragmatism, the valuing of a thing based entirely on its practicality, and I think that's one of the ways we see the church in America compromise with what God has called us to in his word. Compromised people and compromised churches say that the ends justify the means. Compromised people and compromised churches are also very consumeristic, all right? We, we have compromised as worship leaders and pastors if our primary audience for our worship gatherings is you instead of God, 
all right? We've compromised if that becomes the case, okay? Uh, we have compromised as individuals if we come to a Sunday get morning gathering more concerned about what we can get from the gathering as opposed to what we can contribute to the gathering. We've compromised that that's the case. The Sunday morning worship time is biblically the gathering of believers to enjoy God in communion with him and each other, okay? And so when we come, we should primarily come to contribute to that end, but many of us come to consume, and by doing so, we prove that we have compromised what the Bible has called us to. Compromised people and compromised churches also have bought into the idea of radical individualism. And this is a much more subtle compromise, but I think it's probably the most harmful to the church and to our church. So let me, let me just read a definition of individualism, okay? Individualism, it's the moral stance, the political philosophy, or the ideology that emphasizes the moral worth of the individual, Individualists promote the exercise of one's goals and desires and so value independence and self-reliance and advocate that the interest of the individual should achieve precedence over the group, okay? That the interest of the individual should achieve precedence over the group. And in America, we've kind of been groomed to believe that, that as individuals are given more freedom, then there will be more human flourishing. Like the more freedom you have, the more flourishing there will be. Uh, this, this is a, a belief that's held by people on both sides of the political aisle. The more freedom there is, whether, whatever avenue it is, the more flourishing there's going to be. Now, certainly, some degree of freedom is a beautiful thing, all right? It's awesome to not live under a tyrannical government. It's awesome that slavery has been abolished. It's awesome that Jesus, you know, frees us from slavery to sin. So freedom nece isn't necessarily a bad thing. But the way this creeps into the church is when we see individual freedom as being more essential to human flourishing than what the Bible calls us to when it says to submit to one another and submit to biblical church leadership. So when Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as for those who will have to give an account, like that's, that's a hard and that's an uncomfortable verse to read uh, because we have compromised with the culture that we live in. And so when we read any verse about submission, whether it's in the home or, or in the church or wh whatever we read about submission, it rubs us the wrong way because we believe more in what our culture says that freedom, the more freedom leads to flourishing instead of what God's word says, and that is obedience to his word leads to more flourishing. And so many people sacrifice the benefits of submitting and being accountable to a people because we believe that it sacrifices our individual freedoms and we believe that the American dream will provide us with more joy and happiness than the call of Jesus. And we've compromised what Jesus has called us to. Radical individualism also plays itself out amongst people who become disillusioned with the American church and all the ways that they perceive that she has compromised herself, right? It's easy to look at the church and, and, and see ways that, that we have compromised. It's much more difficult to look at yourself and see ways that you have compromised, right? And so therefore, when people look at the church and see ways that they have compromised themselves, then they remove themselves from the community in order to support with their finances and their 
time and their gifts, maybe some other good organizations like parachurch organizations or overseas missions, and yet they neglect the mission field that God has put them in here and now. People in this group will often believe that the Great Commission and the proclaiming of the gospel will be successful overseas, but they think that the church in the West is too compromised for it to be successful here. And let me tell you something. Radical individualism is way more harmful to the church than than cultural Christians or lukewarm Christians or superficial Christians because this is what happens in radical individualism. Radical individualism allows for believers to pridefully be puffed up as they disobediently remove their contribution to the local church, all the while thinking they are doing the righteous and the noble thing. Like those who have compromised with radical individualism live as if the failings of the church yesterday justifies their unfaithfulness to God's word today. Right? That, that's maybe the heart of the issue, right? When, when, when people look at the failings of the church yesterday and they use that to justify their, unfaith, their unfaithfulness to God's word today. And that is, that is a lie. That is a lie. And many a Christian has been picked off by the enemy after pridefully disconnecting themselves and not submitting to a local body of believers. And so be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. We've all to some degree compromised our faith. We've all to some degree compromised what God's word has called us to. We've, we've all to some degree compromised the Great Commission for the American dream. We have. I, I have. I'm admitting that we, like, we, we all have, right? We have compromised true community for radical individualism. We've compromised the joy in contributing for the allure of consuming. We've compromised biblical faithfulness for the promise of pragmatism, that the ends will justify the means. And yet, and yet, God is not done with his compromised people. He's not done with his compromised people. God can, and he does, and he will continue to work through compromised people to carry out his good and perfect purposes. You see, you come from a long line of compromising people. From Adam and Eve in the garden, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Mordecai and Esther, to Peter, James, and John, history has shown us that humanity in its sinful flesh is incapable of living an uncompromising life. But I didn't come here this morning to tell you to live an uncompromising life right? Hashtag no compromise, right? I didn't didn't come to tell you to live an uncompromising life. I came to show you that you have been compromised, and I came to proclaim to you that there was one who came and lived an uncompromising life in your place. And his name is Jesus, who being fully God and fully man, came to live on earth, to live the uncompromising life that humanity had failed to live. And he was tempted in every way that we are to turn from God, and yet he remained faithful. And he died on a cross so that we might die to our sinful, compromised flesh. And he rose from the dead that we might be raised to a new life that is united to him and is united to his people. The title of this sermon series is God on Every Page. 
Because in the story of Esther, they never mention God once, and yet we can't help but see God on every page. And today in the story of Esther, we see that God is even on the pages of people compromising with the world. And know this, church, that in the same way that compromised orphan Esther was elevated to queen, so too those in Christ are taken from compromised orphans to co-heirs with Christ. John 1, verses 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 14, 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. Before faith in Christ, we were far from home. We were far from God. We were stained in the mud of sin. We were hiding in the tall grass of shame. We were trying to clean ourselves up and only making things worse. We tried to make ourselves presentable to return home, but we didn't know how to get there. But it was while we were lost, and it was while we were in Susa, the citadel, that Christ rescued us, that, Christ, that he adopted us, and that he welcomed us in as sons and daughters. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Listen, church, the only chance we have of not compromising our faith is to receive Christ, to die to ourself, and to let him live his uncompromising life through us. God is not done with his compromised people. God can and does and will continue to work through compromised people to carry out his good and perfect purposes as Jesus lives his uncompromising life through us. Let's pray.